Good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. I am glad you're here with us this morning. I'm glad that you made it today. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair and having perhaps a better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how one way leads on to way, I doubted if I ever should come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhat, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost is the author, as you know. It's one of the most famous poems ever. Uh, when it comes to poetry, uh, generally speaking, if you know anything about poetry, you've heard of this poem. Maybe it's his last name, I'm not certain, but a morning like today, I've always kind of assumed that this was a cold decision. And I don't know if that has anything to do whatsoever with reality of how the poem was designed to be written out and thought through. And like, but I've always kind of think of this as a wintry morning and he's making the decision as to which uh, path to head down. Last weekend, I went on a road trip with uh, Cliff and Deb Miller. Uh, we made our way to Washington, D.C. We went uh, over the weekend. We got back for church here on Sunday. We got in very late uh, from Washington, D.C. We were at an international justice mission uh, conference where uh, for two days we just prayed for all around the world. Uh, I'm learning some of these statistics at that conference. 45 million people today living in slavery around the world. Different types of slavery. Uh, child slavery, sex slavery, uh, slavery where people will take someone's land uh, because she's a female and has no uh, right in that community to the land and because her husband has passed away, suddenly it's no longer hers and now she's a slave in her own land. Uh, a very difficult kind of thing to deal with, uh, but the realization that uh, there is a lot going on in this world that we need to be praying for. And so what, if anything else, I've been to good conferences before with good speakers and good uh, worship music and that type of thing. But the emphasis at this conference was all about prayer. Uh, and not just because we can't do anything else, let's pray. But no, let's lead with prayer. Let's start with prayer. Let's bathe these situations in prayer. And then be able to celebrate the stories year after year of what God is at work and doing there. But we made the trip. Uh, they rented a minivan, and so I got to ride in the back of a minivan for hours uh, with Cliff Miller. And if you don't know Cliff Miller very well, Cliff is here on my left, uh, on your right. Cliff, uh, there's two things that you need to know about Cliff. When Cliff says, I've just got one thing real quick. <laughs> neither will he talk about just one thing, and neither will it be real quick. So we made this trip, and, uh, and, and I was in the car with Ben and with Deb on the way down. Uh, ben is, is 28. I'm 35 on the way back. Levi rode with us on the way back. He's 22. And like, you had to phrase your questions just right to not say, are we there yet? Like I just had to be careful not to say that, but it's very much what it felt like. We're all in the minivan. We're all adults, but I'm still in the back. And Papa Cliff has still got the wheel. And he's going to be driving, you know, and, and, uh, 
and he didn't take a breath for two days, I don't think. <laughs> and his family members are smart enough to go to sleep or pretend to go to sleep. And so Levi and I got to hear the stories that the family had heard probably a thousand times over, and we just kept trucking along. The other thing you don't know about Cliff, or maybe you do, is that Cliff really doesn't like to follow a GPS. There's no reason to. There's other ways to go. And, and using this poem as kind of a launching point for us today, Cliff is someone who likes the road less traveled. He knows that there are ways that you could go that would be a direct route. Uh, he looks at the GPS and he likes the sound of the words recalculating. <laughs> a road less traveled by. All right, grab your Bibles this morning. We are in the book of Malachi. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, we're at roughly a page 1,000. I know it's within a few pages of there. Um, as we look at this book, we've made our way along. Uh, we are in the New International Version. If you're following along with your iPad or uh, iPhone, make your way there with version or another app to get you there. But we're going to be in Malachi uh, chapters 3 and 4 this morning. And to continue that analogy, you know, some sections of the Bible are, are like those Roads. Some are roads that we travel on frequently. We know the way. We've been there before. We go by that tree or that barn, and we've seen it before, and we're used to that. And then there's some other parts of the Bible of Scripture that are the road less traveled, an area that you don't know as well, an area that you're not exactly sure uh, what will happen along that way. And different church traditions that we come from actually have different familiar paths. So if you're from a reformed background, as, as someone, uh, if you're from that and you know who you are in the room, you've probably spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. You've just, you just love digging into doctrine and working your way through, and that's where your background is, and that's where you love uh, to travel, and that's where you love uh, to be. If you come from a more practical, maybe seeker-sensitive type of church where you're just always thinking about the person who's coming through the door that has no gospel background, has no understanding of, of the church or of God and what he's at work with, you might have spent a lot of time in the book of Proverbs and just dealing with uh, just general spiritual truths that are morally good, that, that really can, everyone can connect with as that being a launching point. And there's a lot of churches that have a seeker-sensitive type of approach to, to a church will spend a lot of time in the book of Proverbs. And then if you're from a more charismatic background or Pentecostal, you've spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. Uh, you just love looking at, at the way that God is moving in his church and the way that he's moving rapidly and moving in all types of different ways. And that is just a familiar road for you. Here at Randall, we're doing our best that we can to try to travel all of those roads, to make our way down to the ends of those roads. We like to explore those roads. Since 2013, I've been part of the preaching rotation here at Randall, and as, as we've gone through and explored some of those roads, I'll tell you that we've been through uh, more than 15 books uh, in that time and just making our way through Scripture. And, uh, and, and we put that as a priority because we're really trying to do, is trying to preach the entire counsel of God. And over a three to five year period, we're not trying to cover every word in scripture, but we are trying to cover every theme in scripture. And, and really what is God saying as a whole? He has given us his word. Uh, we believe that his word is infallible as it's originally written. And as we look at it today, we wanna to be able to look at all of God's word, to be able to connect the dots and hear the big story, the big epic that is being told. 
And so Malachi is one of those themes. It is uh, by a prophet, this, this writing of prophecy. As we go through scripture and as we preach, we, we make our way through different types of scripture. There's the gospels or there's Old Testament narrative or there's New Testament epistles, which are letters written by Paul and others. Uh, there's scripture that deals with end times and there's scripture uh, that deals with wisdom literature, which we went through last summer when we went through Ecclesiastes. And so we're in this prophetic literature. There's a prophet, Malachi, who is talking. And as you look at this type of literature, as we look at what is being written here, understanding it helps. And so prophecy sometimes has got this idea that it's always future telling, always telling the future. In the New Testament, we see scripture in the book of Acts that talks about there being those with the gift of prophecy. And when we look at that, we get confused because we say, well, I don't know if, if someone came to me and said, I have a word from the Lord and it has to do with what's going to happen to you next week. I'll tell you that I'm a little bit skeptical in that. But really when you see prophecy in scripture, what is it actually driving? Well, prophets know God's will. And if you look at all of the prophetic scripture, as you look at that, you'll see them continue saying, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. They are tuned to God and his truth for the current day. They bring, uh, they bring correction and challenge the dominant assumptions that have been inherited by culture. And they insist that the community obey God, that God's people would follow his leading and be redirected back. This is a different approach than other uh, of the gifts. A, a gift of an evangelist is all about reaching the lost and making sure that they know who Jesus is. Uh, the prophet is talking to God's people already who have gone astray, who have gotten distracted, and thus saith the Lord to bring them back. A prophet corrects the existing believer, and that correction is uncomfortable and you've seen as we've made our way through this book of Malachi, there's some uncomfortable things that have been said there. And this morning there will be some uncomfortable things that he will say to us today. So I want to preface, uh, preface that for us today to say it, it, it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. I was talking with George Sharp last week when it was so windy and just asking him, what does it take for a pilot to be able to land at the airport when the wind is blowing around like this? He says, well, for some people it's going to be a bumpy ride. You know, on their way in. So, so buckle in this morning. There's a few things that Malachi is going to take us through that are going to be a bumpy ride. We've called this series the title, What God Sees, or Do You See What God Sees? In Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, Malachi calls, what he would call this series, is, it's a burden. Uh, it's an oracle. He says from God, it's a burden for me to bring it to you today. But he also says there in that first few verses of the book, he says that the flag that you'll see waving throughout the book, and if you've been with us through the whole series, I pray that you have seen that and heard that come through in a very real way, that God is saying, but I love you. I'm doing this, I'm saying this, I'm challenging you because I love you. And that's what needs to be heard above all else. It appears in, in many ways that Malachi is tiring I was talking with Dan Weber this morning and we were talking about a, a mutual friend that we have as a pastor who's just really been through the ringer, difficult church. And over those years, eight years or more, just seeming like he's taken a beating as the pastor and he's tiring. So kind of hear that spirit of Malachi this morning as he's getting to this point and almost asking the people that he is dealing with, will you ever listen? 
Will you ever listen to what God is saying and has been trying to speak to you? Will you stop the second guessing? If you're using your bulletin notes this morning, that's your first fill-in, the second guessing. Will you stop the second guessing? In Malachi chapter 3 is where we are. We're going to begin in verse 13. The second guessing. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers will prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they will get away with it. Are you second guessing? He is calling them second guessers. I am a second guesser. I love to second guess things. I love to analyze and think. And, and if you are ever in a group and, and my staff, as we work together, they know this. I'm constantly saying, yeah, but what if we do this? And sometimes I'm actually fighting against the very idea that I pitched a few minutes ago. It's the opposite. I'm trying to make an argument for both sides of second guessing to the point that actually at my kindergarten graduation, do any of you have like the I love me box somewhere in your house like that has all your like trophies and stuff that you've accumulated over time? You, you know what I'm saying, the I love me box, okay? In my I love me box, uh, there's a, a, um, a plaque or a piece of paper, whatever you want to call it, that I got at my kindergarten graduation. My kindergarten teacher gave me the, the Better Idea Award. <laughs> Apparently... I had the audacity when the teacher would tell us to, you know, all right, kids, I need you all to get your pencils and your crayons out from your desk. I would raise my hand and say, actually, I've got a better idea. Why don't we do second guessing? There's a bedrock fundamental teaching that we've seen through Malachi. Maybe you haven't grasp it as, as overtly as I did when I went back and looked through this this week. <coughs> Last week's text in Malachi 3, 6 says this, for, the, for I am the Lord and I do not change. I am the Lord and I do not change. And so the basic idea is here. They disagree, they disagree with God. They say, I've got a better idea than you do for this. I've got a better plan. I have, that sounds difficult. Maybe I don't want to do that. God says it's right. They say it's wrong. God says do this. They say, well, I don't need to do all of that, do I? How many of you have been there? Where you're debating back and forth with God. You're saying, God, I know that's what you want me to do, but, Yeah should all be nodding our head and raising our hand. Why? Because we all do that. The irony of that statement is, I disagree with you, Lord. I disagree with you. That's a good idea. I disagree with you, Lord. That sounds nice, but I've got a better idea. God, I disagree. I've got some frustrations. When I read this scripture, when I go through this book of Malachi, it seems like you're pretty hard on us. And so I'll just let that talk about the people of Israel. I won't let that talk about me. I won't deal with those things that you're trying to deal with me because I just kind of disagree with that approach. 
Verse 14 says this. This is what the people are responding. They're saying, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? They're assessing it. They're looking at the checks and balances, and they're saying, you know what? If we fulfill all of his requirements, what do we gain from that? You know what? I've got a better idea. So here's what you need to do, God. I need you to apologize for what you've said. I need you to change what you've written. I need you to amend what you've told us to do so that I don't have to quite go through that. I need you to evolve with the times. I need you to mature and to grow. I need you to catch up with where the rest of society is. And God's response then and now and at all times is, I do not, what? Change. See, this is where Christianity is different from spirituality. Spirituality says God is not a person, but more of a thought or a concept or a being. So because he cannot be specifically defined, uh, he is not unchanging. Instead, he is changing. He's always altering, always moving, always being able to adjust. And what God used to say was wrong has adjusted and changed because culture has changed and time has changed. And so he doesn't say that or this being doesn't say that that's wrong anymore because things have adjusted. And generally speaking, God needs to catch up with the times to modify himself, to edit his scriptures and make some adjustments so that God can be what? Current. But see, that is spirituality because God is not current. God is eternal. God is not current. God is eternal. God doesn't need to change. We need to change. God doesn't change with the times. God is working on change all the time. In the Bible, God teaches, I am the potter, you are the clay. I've one time, I've sat down one time at a potter's wheel and be able to try to spin it. Some of you have a lot more experience with that. So the rest of us just, you know, go back to your Play-Doh days, right? We say, you know what, God, I know what you've said. I know what you're doing. And you're saying, you know what? Spirituality says, you know what? I'll be the potter. I'll mold you and form you to what I need at this time and at this place. And then later, if that doesn't match up with what I need, I'll just collapse it, smash it all out, and start over. And God, you fit into that shape or into that box. That's what spirituality teaches. But what does God teach? What do we see here? He says, I do not change. I am not like that. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. This book of Malachi has been a series. If you haven't been with us the whole time, if you read through the quick read, it's just a few pages, you'll see that there's a series of six different questions that people keep throwing back at God. And as they do this, they accuse him of certain things. They, they throw back in the face of Almighty God and they accuse him of things. And then God comes back and gives them evidence to the contrary. He says, no, I have not done that. And then basically demonstrates that they are hypocritical and demonstrates that their behavior is two-faced. You may be looking at that passage this morning, and I would be looking at that passage and say, no, 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 I'm not two-faced. I just have a better idea. I've got a better plan for my life than you do. Example of Malachi chapter 3. 
Last week, uh, Mario was talking about, remember he told the story about climbing to the top of the mountain and he, and he gets to the top and his friend, rather than turning and looking, the top is right there. All he did is just turn around and go back down the mountain. He said, you know what? It's been tough. It's been raining. It's been storming. I've, I've gone through all of this and you know what? It, it doesn't matter what's up there because I have a better idea. My idea is I want to go home and go to sleep and give up even though the top was right there. And as he dealt with in this passage, there's, in that first half of chapter three of Malachi, we see the tithe. There's a very specific way that God was gonna deal with his people. He said, I want 10% back. In this specific time to these people at that time, he says, I want 10% back. And they say, you know what? We've got a better idea. How about we don't give you anything? because it sounds pretty expensive to us. It sounds like if I put that on the altar that it's gonna go away and I'll never see it again. As I talked before about familiar roads, for some of you, this Malachi chapter three is a familiar road. You've come from a church, you spent a lot of time on this passage, or maybe you've watched on television that the health and wealth gospel is birthed here in the United States based on this passage and is a familiar text for many pastors. The mistake of looking at this text, however, and not seeing in the context of everything else that is going on, is missing the very fact. If, if this text is preached as if tithe was some sort of, of bat that you can take and say, I'm going to go over and now I'm going to hit the pinata of blessings and it's just going to spill out over on top of me, that is missing the whole point of this text, the whole chapter, the whole book of what Malachi is trying to deal with here. And in fact, that type of giving is more about giving a little bit to God and getting a lot back. Sounds a whole lot more like a Ponzi scheme than an approach to worship and an offering before a holy God. And so as we look at this today, as we, as we look at what God is teaching us through this, as we recap and think through that, God says, you know what, it is, it is my land. It is, it is, those are my animals that are grazing there. And I've given them to you. And what I ask for is 10% back. You keep the 90%. I'll provide for you. I will make your crops grow. I will make your business flourish. This is my promise to you if you will obey me. That's the promise that he is making. And these people are looking back and saying, you know what, I've got a better idea. I won't do any of that. And you bless me anyway. The big idea is this, all blessings come down from heaven. They in their time, you know, they were actually physically planting things and growing them. They actually felt like the blessings were coming out of the ground, but really the blessings were coming down from heaven. And understanding that no, blessings don't, blessings don't come from creation up, they come from the creator down. Will you listen? Will you stop the second guessing? And then God even takes it a step further. Watch this as we move forward. He, he's basically even asking the audacity, would you stop the second coming? That is your second fill-in. 
Would you be able to stop the second coming? Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The Israelites through this entire book have been constantly berating, second-guessing God. They've asked, how have you loved us? How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? How have we wearied you? Where is the God of justice? How have we robbed you? How have we spoken against you? Lots of questions for God, lots of conversations with God, lots of accusations for God. And God stops the whole thing. He says, just stop. And now you will listen to me. That's enough. God is always going to get the last word. God gets the final say. And God says this. He points to it here. There are two types of people in the world. God's not talking about outward differences such as black and white, rich and poor, as we see in the New Testament, the Jew and the Gentile, or the male and the female, or the slave and the free. These are external differences. What God is dealing with here is the eternal differences. There are two types of people. We have the godly and the ungodly. On verse 17, he says, on the day when I act, and then there in verse 18, he says, you will again see the distinction between what? The righteous and the wicked. The Lord had heard what these folks were saying. There was a remnant, there were some who were listening to what he was saying, and in all of this, they actually were paying attention. They heard the words of faith and they gave him reverence in contrast to the people that were around him, the insolent people that just kept saying, you know what, I got better plans than you do, God. I've got a better idea. And so the text says that God records for them a scroll of remembrance. This is a, this is a figurative thing. I want you to, to hear that. I don't believe that there's any type of literal scroll anywhere in heaven that is being written. God is much bigger than that. He doesn't have to go to his logbook to see who is written in the scroll. He knows, he understands. God does not forget his own. When he does judge, when he does judge in that second coming, when he does judge, everyone will see the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And just like that poem we read at the beginning by Robert Frost, there's, there's two roads to take. Is the way he's described, and, and that decision makes all the difference. And really, like that poem is saying, you cannot travel both roads. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand the road that you are on, the road that you are walking down, that is a road that leads to hell. Without Christ, you are going to hell. You might say, that's, that's not very friendly. That's not very nice. 
The good news is you don't, you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to hell. That's what, that's what Jesus did on the cross. But the bad news is right now, if you don't know that, if you don't connect to that, if you don't make that decision to walk down that road, that's where your eternal fate is now destined to go. Those are the steps. There are two types of people, God says here, the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous were going to feel the wrath of God. Will you ever listen? Will you stop the second guessing? Will you ever listen? You will not stop the second coming. Will you ever listen? For that second group of people, God has given them and you a second chance. It's the third fill-in, a second chance. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 1. And surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day it was coming, it will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. This is describing what is at the end of that one road, that road that leads to hell, that road that has been decided ahead of time. As long as you're on that road, this is what will happen, it says in verse 1. But verse 2 says, but, however... But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with its healing and its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, anyone who could speak on this text, maybe anyone in this room I'm of a very small minority of people who actually knows what this is talking about when it talks about the calves running and frolicking. It is getting a smaller, smaller percentage of a room this size or a room of any size of someone who has grown up in a situation that actually deals with animals and, and deals with planting crops. And we see all these illustrations in Scripture. And they're becoming more and more foreign to us the more modernized our culture becomes. And that's okay. But there's something very special about the description that is going on here that I don't know if, if I can quite articulate it well for you today, but I'm going to try. Every spring growing up, uh, one of my responsibilities as a kid was in the spring as the grass begins to grow, we had to go around a field and put a new fence up around this field every year. We would take it down uh, partway through the summer because then we would bring our equipment in and mow it and make sure that we had hay to be able to take inside for the winter months. But there were a few months there that we would allow the cattle to be able to be out on this land. And so we would run that, that cable and we would, we would stretch that fence all the way around every year. And that was one of my responsibilities. And I liked that responsibility because I got to drive a four-wheeler to get to do it. So it was awesome. So we got to set everything up. And then there was the day that you would bring the cattle, that you would bring the calves to the gate. You ever heard the saying, and you probably not because I'm a farmer. We talk about these things about like, like an animal looking at a new gate. They do, they come and they all stare and look at a new, you haven't heard that saying, that's okay. We got one, thank you, all right. Like a calf looking at a new gate, you, we open up this new gate and first it would be one that would kind of step through and before you knew it, 
the whole herd would run, rush out into the field like kids the last day of school running out to recess on the playground and they were jumping and frolicking and twisting and turning and these are stupid cows. But somehow you just see joy all over their faces. Is that their face, I think? Their body language, just pure joy. I'm a stupid cow, but I'm running around in this field and this is pretty exciting. And it seems like that, that tiny picture, that little slice of heaven, like that spring day, it even talks about the way the heaven would be like and it'd be glorified, resurrected, we'd be in our perfect bodies. And there's this beautiful day that is coming where the sun is rising, it says. It'd be like the sunshine of a new spring day. Maybe you needed to hear that today in Buffalo. Just the, the, the new upshoots that come through the ground on that beautiful spring day and the way that everything seems new C.S. Lewis talked about that, the way that uh, every year there's this repeating. It seems like that God is demonstrating for himself the way that, that in the seasons that change, it's just repeating itself and showing again and again, year after year, the way that the old has become new, the way that God is resurrecting and bringing something to life, even in the regular patterns of our day, that there's a day and a night, and it just comes back again. He said, but there, after, the, after the night, there's still the morning. And that's being alluded to here, that one day we won't need the sun. One day we won't need the sun because we have the Son of God to light all of heaven. One day, that day will come, and it's, it's mind-bending to think about it. It's breathtaking to think about it, the healing that will come. There will be no more doctors, no more hospitals, no more surgeons, no more therapy, no more hospice care, no more physical therapy, no more wheelchairs, no more canes, no more walkers, no more handicap accessible bathrooms, no more pharmaceuticals. That's what happens when the glory of God is demonstrated on his people. And healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, physical healing, totally for all of God's people forever. I don't know if I've grasped that for you this morning. I hope that you're leaning in and saying, okay, okay, so where's the second chance then? Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. He mentions here both Moses and Elijah. First, he mentions Moses. He's referring to the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament that were written specifically for the people of Israel, giving them rules and the regulations of how to live before a holy God. And so that law sets the standard. We judge ourselves by his standard. This is God's standard. And at any point that we fall short of that, we fall short of what? We fall short of the glory of God as we read the book of Romans. When we do that, this falling short is sin, and it leads to judgment. It leads to death. And what do we do? 
Well, the prophets point us to a coming Messiah. They, they tell us that if we turn away from our sin and trust the Lord, the Messiah will come. They tell us if we have disobeyed the Lord, but that the Lord is coming. And through his son, Jesus Christ, he's coming to save us. So here he mentions Moses and the connection to the law. And he also mentions Elijah. Elijah is one of these towering figures in the Old Testament, a, a prophet in the Old Testament. He's an amazing guy. And he's one of two people that we read about in Scripture who didn't die. The first one is Enoch, and he said that he walked with God, and Elijah was whisked away on a, on a fiery chariot before the Lord. You may have heard that in the New Testament that, that John the Baptist would be a reincarnation of Elijah. I'm not going to teach that this morning because the Bible does not teach reincarnation. That is not something that we see anywhere in Scripture, and that would be foolish of me to try to go down that road and say, well, he is a reincarnation of Elijah because that is not something that is biblical, scriptural, or aligns with the rest of the canon. But John the Baptist is a prophet. John the Baptist does do exactly what the rest of the prophets do, align us and bring us back and say, thus saith the Lord, repent, he says, over and over. If you want to put all of John the Baptist's ministry into one word, it is that word, repent. Turn back to God. So if John the Baptist isn't the second chance to turn back to God, then who is it? Well, there's no surprise here. It's God's own son, the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. So how do we put Jesus first as your final fill-in? How do we put Jesus first? Turn over, if you will, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We'll move quickly through this and we'll be finished. This is coming out of John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus has washing his disciples' feet Jesus, in that time, he will predict his betrayal. Jesus, he predicts Peter's denial, and he predicts his own death. That all happens in John chapter 13. And they are looking back, and these disciples who have given their lives to follow him, they look back and say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. You said that you are our second chance. You, you, you're the Messiah who has come. How is this going to work? You are our only option. We pick up at chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how could we know the way? And Jesus answered, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They had waited 400 years for this Messiah. God had closed the Old Testament. This was his final word, was that there was going to be 
uh, judgment. There was going to be uh, this separating between the righteous and the unrighteous. And he said, there is, there's an option. And what's the option? The option is the Messiah who has come. And now the disciples, he's here. He's in front of them. And now he's going to go away. They said, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. No more second guessing. No more arguing and disputing God's plan and whether it was right or wrong. And no one comes to the Father except through his Son, Jesus Christ. As Mario makes his way up here, I want to bring your attention back to this. If you were here, we started this sermon series with this chain. And we talked about the links of the chain and being a legacy of faith. And as we look at the, the people in Israel, their, their links, they were a series of broken links. Broken link after broken link after broken link before the Lord. They were damaged goods. They were going to question God at every turn. But what God wants for us is more than that. And we know the difference because we know the one in whom they were being pointed to. We know his name is Jesus. And we know that he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. That he demonstrated at that cross what, what happens when God himself pays the penalty for your sins and for mine. And so, as we look at this, those series of broken links. Don't let that be our story. Don't let that be how we live. Instead, let us be those ones that say, I want to be the strongest link in this chain. And I'll do that how? By putting Jesus first. By eliminating the second guessing. By eliminating the idea that I've got some other plan that will work. And what you start to see is a chain that forms that year after year, generation after generation, as is alluded to here at the end of the book of Malachi uh, in verse 4 of chapter 4, talking about parents who are developing their children and children who respect their parents. Because why? Because they understand God's role in their lives and where they are connected to at the end of the day, the righteous versus the unrighteous. They know where their link is in the chain. They know who God is, and they know how they connect to him. So I pray that in this series, that God has opened your eyes, that he has challenged you in a way that you've never been challenged before to be that strong link. And that today, as you've looked at this text today, and you're trying to find out where you stand or where you, that you understand that a decision has to be made. A decision to say, I'm going to follow Christ and, and who he is with no strings attached, nothing else. He is my God and I give myself entirely to him. There literally is no other option to that. And just as Malachi was calling his people back to God, he calls to us today to turn and follow him and stop asking the questions. Stop asking the questions and say, God, I don't think that you've got this figured out. He does. God, I don't think that you've got a better, I don't think that your plan is gonna work out. It will. 
God, I don't trust if I put my offering in the offering plate that you'll take care of me. He will. God, if you're asking me to sell all that I have and become a missionary and go to Africa, that you'll take care of me. He will. God, I don't want to be inconvenienced on my vacation doing mission work. You should. Because when he is first, everything else falls in line. When we see that demonstrated generation after generation after generation, that legacy is a beautiful thing. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you this morning for your word. We pray that it has challenged many. Lord, if there's any here this morning who are standing looking at that fork in the road like the poem talks about, Lord, that that decision to go which path, Lord, would be clear. Lord, that they would know and understand that what you did on the cross solved the problem of sin for all, once and for all. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, the way that it all interconnects and ties together and how we have seen that demonstrated by just going through book after book. We thank you for speaking to us here today. Lord, we place it all on the altar before you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.